Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 285, Does the Bible Teach That God is a Trinity? Cole Tuggy Dialogue, Part 4. In this last installment, you'll hear Dr. Sean Cole argue for the deity of Christ and for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Remember that this debate is about whether or not the Bible teaches that God is a trinity. In my view, it's actually very difficult to establish all the propositions necessary for the Bible teaching a creedal trinity doctrine. For more on that, see my podcast number 260, How to Argue That the Bible is Trinitarian. But Dr. Cole's basic idea seems to be that everybody will grant that the Father is divine, and now he wants to establish that the Son is divine in the same sense, and so is the Holy Spirit, and yet there's only one God, so they must all be the same God. There's a couple obvious problems with this. One is, how are you going to get that the Son and the Spirit are divine in the same sense as the Father? What qualities does that include? And can you show that each of those has those qualities that go into being divine, right? They can't just be divine in some sense. They have to be divine in the same sense as the Father. In the years prior to Trinitarian Orthodoxy, prior to about 381, there were a lot of theologians who thought that the Logos was divine, but in a lesser sense, and that the Spirit was yet still less divine. One early 4th century author refers back to the famous origin as teaching that the Father, Son, and Spirit are the three greatest realities, and he meant one, two, three in order, greatest, second greatest, third greatest. And early authors never talk about the Trinity as the one God. Dr. Cole really hasn't dealt with the evidence that in the New Testament the one God just is the Father, and so can't be the Trinity. For more on that, check out my podcast 189 called The Unfinished Business of the Reformation. So the New Testament doesn't ever talk about a triune God, never mentions the Trinity in that sense. What he did in the last installment was he picked almost the only verse in the whole New Testament that even kind of at first sounds like it refers to a triune God, which is the famous Great Commission passage. But as we saw, that looks like it's a misreading at the end of the day, this idea of a tripersonal God, a God in whom there are three equally divine, quote, persons, whatever that means, it's a fourth century idea, and it just doesn't belong in first century documents. In the realm of biblical studies, this is widely acknowledged, although you wouldn't guess it if you're just mostly paying attention to apologists and to systematic theologians. As I mentioned before, Dr. Cole is following mainstream Christian traditions dating back to the 4th century, according to which you can just deduce that God is the Trinity from what is actually said in the New Testament. You can, you just must be able to, right? It has to have always been inevitable that they were going to come up with this idea that God is the Trinity, never mind the history. But that's basically what he's doing. Based on that conviction, He's turning to the New Testament, and he's going to pick out the bits that he thinks will help him prove this. I understand the procedure, but I don't like it. I think the way that you understand a book, or an author, or even a collection of books like the New Testament, is you read the whole thing very carefully, and you look at what they say and what they don't say overall. You don't just cherry-pick the little bits that fit with your preconceived ideas, and then just go with those. And as we've already seen, he's basing his case to a large measure on difficult texts, whether difficult because of interpretation or because of clashing readings in the Greek text that we have, or difficulties in translation. In contrast, the passages I built my case on in my opening statement are really clear and undisputed, and I think I was only drawing clear implications from them and not speculating. Okay, so in his podcast, he's finished with Matthew and with John, and now he's going to turn to the writings of Paul. Again, to try to establish that the Son is divine in the same way the Father is divine, and so is the Holy Spirit, 
which would be a couple of the building blocks for proving a creedal trinity doctrine. But let's just look at a few other passages that teach that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. Note that that's kind of a confusing way to put it. If he thinks that God is the Trinity, well, Jesus isn't the Trinity. In the New Testament, God normally means the Father, but he doesn't think that Jesus is the Father. So when he says that he's trying to show that Jesus is God, what he must mean is that Jesus is homoousion with the Father, that he and the Father are the same essence. In other words, that the Son is, we could say, fully divine, divine in the way that the one God is divine. Again, that's a pretty tall order. That seems like it would be a difficult thing to show. So how's he going to show it? Romans 9, 5. Paul is talking about the privileges that the uh, patriarchs had in relationship to the, the word of God coming to them, and he desires for them to be saved to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, Paul asserts the full humanity of Christ. He says, he has come according to the flesh. He's come in the lineage of, of Abraham, of David, the patriarchs. Yet at the same time, he asserts that Christ, the man, the Messiah, is God over all. Now, in the original language, there could be a possible translations issues, but all the modern translations take this to mean that Jesus is who it's talking about, Paul's talking about when he says, who's God over all. So now Dr. Cole quotes the CSV, the KGV, the NIV, but actually it turns out there's an exception to this trend. Uh, the NASB is the only translation that doesn't make the exp explicit statement concerning Jesus, the man being God over all. It says that Christ is over all, and then it says God bless forever. Well, you know, I think there's probably at least one other major exception, too, which is the New Revised Standard, which is a kind of standard in academia, at least outside of evangelical circles. And it translates, to them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is overall, comma, God blessed forever. Amen. And then it puts a note, and it says, or... Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever, that's the translation that Dr. Cole would prefer, or another alternate, Messiah, period, may he who is God over all be blessed forever. So what all this tells you is that the grammar is simply ambiguous here. And, you know, many papers have been written about this, but at the end of the day, the experts say, well, there's about three different ways it could go. What should we make of the fact that a lot of modern versions have Jesus being called God here? Well, we probably shouldn't make too much of it. Right? We have to worry that they're preferring that because they want to have this as a deity of Christ proof text. And really, you know, we shouldn't just try to settle this from grammar alone. Since this is an undisputed letter of Paul, we should ask, does he think Christ is God over all? And I would say clearly he doesn't. He says in 1 Corinthians that the Father is the head of Christ. And, and later in that same book, he has uh, Christ having all things put under his feet, and then he turns around and he gives it back to God. And when Christ is worshipped in Philippians 2, it's to the glory of God the Father. Looks like he thinks that God overall is the Father, not Christ, for multiple reasons. But suppose he is calling Christ God overall. What would that mean? It looks like Dr. Cole needs it to mean that Christ has the divine essence. But this doesn't follow. In New Testament and Old Testament, someone might be referred to as God and not be the one true God. They can be a lesser being, such as a person. Even Satan, arguably, is referred to as the God of this world in a passage in Paul. So if Paul means that the Messiah is God over all, maybe over all the earth or over all the church or something, if that's what he means, I don't think it is, well then he would just be using God in an inferior sense of the term. 
like we see in Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, the author is quoting Psalm 45, which was originally written about an ancient king, but he's saying that there's an application of this psalm to the Son. So Hebrews 1, 8, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. Aha, well, he's calling the Son God there. He must think the Son is God Almighty, right? Wrong. Verse 9, still quoting Psalm 45, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So in the original context, the king had been referred to as God. He's addressed as, O God. But then it talks about God, his God. Now God in this other usage means obviously the one true God. It means Yahweh. It's God Almighty who's given the king this kingdom. So back to Paul in Romans 9.5, is he calling Jesus God? It doesn't really matter for the dispute between us. In the New Testament and Old Testament, monotheism is true, that there is only one God. And so when we're using God in the highest sense, there can only be one proper referent of that word. However, you don't always have to be using the word God in the highest sense. So there are other, quote, gods. Jesus makes this point in John 10, of course. If you want more on this with more scriptural examples, check out my podcast, 224, Biblical Words for God and for His Son, Part 1, God and Quote God in the Bible. There I discuss how in the New Testament, and yes, even in the Old Testament, monotheism is true. There's only one God. And yet, monotheism, the thesis that only one can properly be referred to as God, is false. Back now to Dr. Cole. But notice what word is absent. The word Father. Paul does not confuse the persons of the Trinity by calling Jesus the Father. They're distinct persons, but Paul calls Jesus God. That is, the man, the Messiah, Jesus, who came in the flesh, shares the same essence as God. He is fully God. He is the God-man, fully man. He's the Christ descended from the patriarchs, descended from the lineage of, of, of Abraham all the way through David. And at the same time, he is absolutely God. I think you can clearly hear there that he's assuming that if anyone can properly and truly be referred to as God, then that person has the divine essence. But that's false according to the Bible. We don't want to rely on a premise in trying to prove the Trinity from the Bible that's false according to the Bible. If there's a crucial false premise, then the argument's unsound. Does Paul confuse the Father and the Son? Thank goodness, no, he doesn't. But we also should notice that he makes clear that the Father is the God of the Son. For instance, look in the first chapter of Ephesians. Now Dr. Cole switches to another famous text by Paul. Philippians 2.6, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. The grammar is very precise. It's a present active participle, which means, again, the way that it's a little bit different than the way John uses it, but it conveys the same idea Paul is here, is that Jesus has always existed in the form of God. Yeah, this seems like a wild non sequitur. I'm sorry, but just the use of an active present participle verb doesn't imply that this has always been the case from eternity past. I'm not sure why Dr. Cole thinks that, but let's let him continue. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has always existed in the form of God? Well, the word he exists or has always been is, is not the usual Greek word for being. The word Paul uses emphasizes the essence of a person's nature. The original language can say Jesus really existed in the form of God. It's an emphatic way of showing that Jesus shares the same being as God. He was in the form, morphe. That Greek word means the essential nature, that which is unchanging. So in other words, what Paul is saying in this text is that Jesus has always existed in the same nature as God. In other words, all that God the Father is, 
Jesus is. Jesus is and always, always been totally God. Not the same person as the Father, but sharing the same form. The word carries the idea that Jesus, when he came to earth, is the visible and physical expression of an invisible God. And this makes sense because Jesus is the only person of the Trinity who has a physical body. He had equality with God in heaven. He shared the same essence of God in heaven. Again, he's distinct in person from the Father, but shared the same essential nature and came to earth as a man to visibly and physically display the very eternal divine nature of God. So here, Dr. Cole is arguing from what may be the most disputed text in the New Testament. The interpreters are all over the map here, although admittedly, many of them think that this has just got to be an important incarnation text. If you're looking for a description of incarnation, an eternal divine person, you know, gaining a complete human nature, body and soul, this and John 1.14 are really the only texts that even kind of sound like they could be referring to such an event or such a change. So a lot of scholars are really very determined to have this be an incarnation text. I can't in this episode give my whole reading of it. If you want to see how I interpret this, check out a blog post I did in the summer of 2019 called A Reading of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And I'll put a link for that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. This also is discussed somewhat in my forthcoming debate book with Chris Date on the deity of Christ. Briefly, we know that in this time, morphe was not typically used in the philosophical sense to mean a defining essence, but rather to mean a condition, often an observable condition, but not necessarily. It could be an essential condition, but often not. So, for example, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, refers to an idol as being in the morphe of a man in the form of a man. Now, an idol does not have the essence humanity because that would make the idol a human being. So you know the word's not being used in the philosophical sense, meaning essence there. Rather, the idol looks like a man. It's in the shape of a man, right? Two arms, two legs, a head, front and back, etc. And in the literature on Philippians 2, scholars say that this usage of morphe for a non-essential condition is typical in this period and outside of metaphysical contexts. Also, you have to look at this very passage because it refers to, in verse 7, taking on the form of a slave. And slavehood was not classically thought to be a form. There were some crazy doctrines that some humans are natural slaves, that that's like the most fitting thing for them. But slavehood was not a form like humanity or divinity or caninity it wasn't like those. If you're in the form of a slave, that's a certain condition that you've fallen into. You might buy your way out of it. You might escape and so on. So it's not an essence. Right. So in verse six, Jesus is in the form of God. And in this seems to be redescribed as some sort of equality with God. Right. But then he loses that. He's not in this form anymore, but he's rather in the form of a slave. Right. So something that can be gained and lost can't be an essence. The only way that you can gain or lose an essence is to come into existence or to go out of existence. If there's some property or condition that can be gained and lost while you still exist, then it's not an essence. It's some non-essential feature, non-essential property or condition that you're in. So that's one point. You just can't load up the word morphe with your preferred meaning and say, aha, this teaches that Jesus has the divine essence. I don't think it does. And another basic point to make about this passage is it doesn't look like it's about the Logos or the eternal divine son. It tells you who it's about right at the start of the passage in verse 5. It says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So it uses the name of the man Jesus. On the face of it, this is talking about the man Jesus. Jesus. And so it looks like it is about his humiliation, his emptying himself of privileges during his human life. It's not clear that it has to do with a pre existent divine person at all. 
And many interpreters have pointed this out, Protestant and Catholic. So is Jesus God in this passage? Clearly not, because he dies, and then God raises him, and God exalts him, and God gives him this name that's above every name, so that everyone should bow to him. And that, it says at the end of the passage, is to the glory of God the Father. So you know Jesus isn't God himself, because honor given to Jesus goes on to someone else. You don't worship God as a means to glorifying someone else. That's just a Jewish presupposition, I think. Does the passage teach that Jesus is eternal? I mean, just read it. On the face of it, it doesn't say that at all. It looks like that's a Nicene interest that's being brought into this context and sort of forced upon it. Yeah, if this is teaching that Jesus has the divine essence, then therefore he would have to be eternal just by having the divine essence. But it's not saying that. Equality with God just can't mean that. If he had all the divine attributes, he wouldn't be able to die, right? Because God is essentially immortal. So you can read a lot of interpreters that will just pound the table and say it's obvious that this has to do with incarnation. I don't think it is obvious. I think you should read more widely if you're only reading scholars who say that. As I very briefly explained, I think this passage fits my theology and Christology better than it fits Dr. Cole's. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Does Paul refer to Jesus in another passage as our great God and Savior? Another passage, Titus 2.13, talking about the second coming. Paul says, We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds like a slam dunk, doesn't it? Oh, wait a second. There's a big butt coming. I like big butts. I cannot lie. Again, you have some translation issues here. Is Paul referring to two persons? Is Paul saying we're waiting for the appearing of God, the Father, and Jesus Christ? Or is Paul merely describing the second coming of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who is our great God? Now, just theologically, what makes sense? Who actually returns at the second coming? Does the Father return? Or is it Jesus who returns physically, literally, at the parousia, at the second coming? The Father doesn't return because the Father's spirit. And if the Father returned, no one would be able to see his coming on the clouds the same way Jesus ascended in the clouds. So contextually and theologically, what we are waiting for is the appearing of the second coming of Jesus Christ, who is God. And again, notice nowhere in the passage does Paul use the term Father. We're not waiting for the appearing of our great Father and great Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the Father and the Son to both come does not make any sense in relation to the rest of the teaching about the second coming. It's Jesus alone, physically, literally, bodily, who returns to earth where every eye will see him. And so if the God, the Father is spirit and no one has ever seen or can see him, how can the Father visibly and bodily return to earth? This passage only makes sense if that little Greek conjunction, Kai, which means and, describes two titles or descriptions of the one man, Jesus, who will appear. He is both Savior and God. He's not the Father. He's a distinct person from the Father, but he is God. So, yeah, it's an interesting argument, but it's not a convincing one. For one thing, it's not clear that the second coming specifically, that is the part where Jesus like literally comes down and stands on the earth again, it's just not clear that that's in view. What it says, again, New Revised Standard Translation is, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and then footnote, or of the great God and our Savior. 
weighed the manifestation of the glory of both of them, is the footnote reading. Just look at Revelation 21 and all that it says about, you know, kind of the full coming of the kingdom. Could you describe that as a manifestation of the glory of God and also of the Son of God? Yes, you could. And so it's just not true that the mention of manifestation of glory requires that Jesus is being called God here. So again, you have a text, the translation of which is ambiguous and which is somewhat disputed. We have to return to the point, though, that even if Jesus is being called God here, this doesn't mean that Paul thinks that he is the Lord God Almighty. In fact, we know that Paul thinks the Father is the God of the Son. And in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, for us Christians, there's one God, the Father. Of course, he also believes in the one Lord. That's his title for the raised and exalted Christ, the human Messiah. And again, to interpret this and even to translate it correctly, it looks like you should consider all the things that Paul says about God, that is the Father, and about the Son of God. Right? But that hasn't been done. We're just trying to deduce the full deity of Christ from the New Testament by hook or by crook. And yeah, this is on the list of popular verses to do that. Okay, one more passage that teaches the full deity of Jesus. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Right, so Him who is true is the Father. And we are in Him who is true. Right, we are in God, that is to say, in the Father. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Okay, who is the true God and eternal life? It is Jesus, the son. The New American Standard said his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. All the modern translations, the NIV, the King James, the Christian Standard, they all say the son, Jesus Christ, is true God and eternal life. It doesn't say Jesus is the father. He's a distinct person from the Father, but it says he is true God and eternal life. Who's true God and eternal life? Is the Father true God and eternal life? Well, absolutely the Father is true God, eternal life. There's no dispute about that. But is Jesus Christ the Son who came in the flesh? Is he true God and eternal life? Yes, because he shares the same essence, the same name as God. And again, the somewhat less partisan NRSV is a good place to start in interpreting this verse. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Period. He is the true God and eternal life. Notice that this translation leaves the ambiguity there that's in the Greek. And the ambiguity is, who does the he refer to there? Does the he refer to the father or to the son? And at first glance, you would think it was the son, because all things being equal, you would think that the Greek word hutos, translated he, would refer back to the last mentioned person. All things being equal, but all things are not equal here. If we believe this is the same author as the gospel according to John, in John 17, he's clearly told us that the Father is the only true God. Okay, well, if he's the only true God, then no one else is. Even if the Nicene Creed describes the Son as true God from true God. Sorry, Nicene Creed. And even more importantly, John has just twice referred to the Father as the one who's true. So it's just natural that he would now refer to him as true God. Even the evangelical scholar Murray J. Harris, in his book Jesus as God, the New Testament use of theos in reference to Jesus, he actually comes down on my side on this. He thinks on balance, Jesus is not being referred to as the true God here. Right, so is this clearly teaching that Jesus has the divine essence? No, it isn't. None of the passages mentioned in this episode clearly teach that Jesus has the divine essence. In other words, that Jesus is divine in the same way that the one God, the Father, is divine. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Cole tries to show that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is as divine as the Father and the Son.
Now, what about the Holy Spirit? Let's just talk about the Holy Spirit. I didn't have a chance to talk about that in my debate. Again, back to the Gospel of John. John 14, 16 through 17. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Now, this may sound elementary to claim that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. He possesses all the attributes of personhood. Wait, wait, what? Those things are not clearly taught in the passage just mentioned. I know those are demands of creedal, small-c Catholic orthodoxy, but it's just way too fast to suppose that those things are clearly taught in that text. But let's hear him out. Notice the masculine pronouns that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit. He, him. It doesn't say it will be with you and it will dwell with you. He will be with you. Yes, masculine pronouns, which you would use if you thought the Holy Spirit was a self, and which you would also use if you were personifying God's Spirit. By themselves, the masculine pronouns don't settle the question here, particularly in light of the rest of the biblical testimony about God's Spirit. And when Jesus there says that he will give you another, that Greek word another means another of the same kind. Another just like me. So in this passage of scripture, you see three distinct persons. Jesus is talking to the Father. Is Jesus the same person as the Father? No. He will give you another helper. Is the helper, the Holy Spirit, the same person as the Father? No. Is the helper the same person as the Son? No. Is the helper the same in essence as the Father and Son? Well, yes, because the word another there that John uses is another of the same kind, meaning that the helper shares the same essence, is the same kind, is the same as Jesus, distinct in person, but shares the same essence. And it's already been established in John that Jesus shares the same essence as the Father. And so if the Holy Spirit comes as a divine person, not an it or a personification of God's Spirit, but an actual divine person who himself will dwell in you, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you and he's another helper of the same kind, then he shares the same essence as Jesus, although he's distinct in person from Jesus. And therefore, logically, because he shares the same essence as Jesus and is distinct in person from Jesus, Jesus and the Holy Spirit both share the same essence as the Father, but they're the three distinct in person. Again, the Trinity. I'm afraid there's an exegetical fallacy there. The word in Greek is just a form of alas. And it just means other or another. And it doesn't have to be the same exact kind of thing. Of course, the author is specifying here what this other is. It's another advocate or helper. So does this other advocate or helper have to be a person since the previous one would be Jesus? No. There's a famous death scene in early Buddhist sources where the Buddha's on his deathbed. You know, they're all upset that their master is dying, and uh, he's happy because he thinks he's going to nirvana, he's not going to be reborn. And he says something to the effect of, uh, now the Dharma will be your teacher. So he's saying, I've been your teacher so far, but now your teacher is going to be my doctrine, my teaching. This makes perfect sense. Jesus could be the helper of the apostles when he's there face-to-face with them, and then God could give them a different helper but this helper could just be power from on high, just like you see in Acts. So on the face of it, this text looks like it's fully consistent with my view that the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is not supposed to be a person in addition to the Father and the Son. And I have to note what I think is a false assumption here, which is that talk about God's Spirit or the Holy Spirit, that that talk in the New Testament has to have some one meaning I don't think it does. I think biblical spirit talk is a little more complicated than that. For details, check out Trinity's podcast number 25 and 26, where I interview Pastor Sean Finnegan about this issue. But now suppose you did think that the Holy Spirit is a self, a personal being, even one which is in some sense divine. 
would you then have to be a Trinitarian? No. A number of famous Unitarian theologians, such as John Biddle, Samuel Clark, Origen, Tertullian, they thought the Holy Spirit was a third divine person, but they didn't believe in a triune God. So just because you have the Holy Spirit as a person who is in some sense divine, it doesn't follow that you believe in a tripersonal God. You might think the one true God is the Father, and these other ones are divine in a lesser sense in the case of the Son, and in a yet lesser sense in the case of the Spirit. These were popular views in mainstream Christianity up through the time of Eusebius, the famous church historian. So what Dr. Cole here is saying isn't going to be enough to show that this passage assumes that God is Trinity. One undivisible, unified, singular God in essence, existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit. The Father's not the same person as the Spirit. The Son's not the same person as the Father. The Son's not the same person as the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, yet all three persons share eternality, power, glory, equality, as sharing the same essence as God. If only the text actually said that. I think if you just read them, you'll see that no triune God appears therein. He's trying to deduce these conclusions from the texts, but as best I can tell, it doesn't go well. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Cole ends with what he says is a Trinitarian prayer in the New Testament. Let me just end with the prayer that Paul gives in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. This is a prayer. And again, you see all three persons in this Trinitarian prayer of Paul. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, Paul prays to the Father. Right, because for Paul, the one God just is the Father, and vice versa. As a distinct person from Christ as a distinct person from the Spirit. But Paul prays that the Father would grant us power through whom? Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit's the one that grants us power. The Holy Spirit's not an it. It's not, he's not a force or a fog or a ghost. He's a divine person. Well, that hasn't been shown, has it? The Spirit sounded like a power there, specifically a power of God and not a divine person, which is what you see in most biblical texts. To assert here that what's being done by the Spirit couldn't possibly be due to a power, I'm sorry, it's just table-pounding. Again, Paul prays that you'll be strengthened in your inner being with power through His, through God's Spirit. Why couldn't that be a power of God and not a person of God? No reason has been given. And again, you have to look at the whole New Testament. And both the Father and the Spirit in this passage of Scripture are distinct from Christ, who grants us knowledge of God's love, the the depth, the height, the breadth of Christ's love. So not only do we see all three persons mentioned, the Father, the Spirit, the Son, Christ. There are clearly two persons here. 
But even if there were three, still, there's no mention of the thing that we're disputing about here, which is a triune God, a tripersonal God. In that respect, it's like the rest of the New Testament. But I want you to notice how it ends. How does Paul end the prayer? He prays to the Father that the Spirit would give us grace upon grace and strength and power and that Christ would help us experience his love. And then notice how it all ends. That, the end of verse 19, that. What's the purpose of this prayer? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fullness of God, right. That is to say, of the Father. This is the 99.5% New Testament usage of the word theos. And unless there's some reason to think it can't be the Father, that's who theos refers to in the New Testament. But Dr. Cole is not going to take it that way. The passage has to be made to fit the theory that there's an idea of a triune God in the Bible. He's already mentioned three persons. He's already prayed to the Father, but notice how it ends, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. He doesn't say, I pray that you may be filled with the fullness of the Father, or the fullness of the Spirit, or the fullness of Christ. Now, that wording would not be wrong. Those are true statements. But when we pray, we can be filled with the fullness of the Father. When we pray, we can be filled with the fullness of the Son. When we pray, we can be filled with the, the Spirit, respectively. But, but Paul summarizes the fullness as the fullness of God, theos. He makes a, a theological statement here. All three persons are distinct, yet they all share the fullness of the one being God. The Father is the fullness of God. The Spirit is the fullness of God. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the fullness of God. How can we experience the fullness of God from three distinct persons named in the prayer unless all three share the fullness of God? This passage clearly teaches the difference in economic versus ontological essence of the Trinity. We pray to the Father who has riches and glory. We receive strength from the Spirit. We receive love from the Son. Now, does this mean that we don't receive love from the Father, or we don't receive power from the Father, or that the power only comes from the Holy Spirit, or that we don't receive love from the Spirit, or love from the Father, but we only receive love from the Son? No, again, in economic function, in role, in ministry, each person of the Trinity provides or grants or ministers or gives us something different in time and space and history, experientially, so that we can understand and know the love of God. We experience riches from the Father. We experience power from the Spirit. We experience love from the Son. Yet all three persons working in us, what do we ultimately experience? The fullness of God. Again, one God in essence, yet existing in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, who share eternality and equality and power and glory. I mean, this is getting a bit frustrating. Just go read the passage in Ephesians 3. It doesn't say that God is the Trinity. It doesn't say there are three divine persons. It doesn't say, it doesn't presuppose, it doesn't even hint that there are three persons equally sharing the divine essence. It doesn't say anything about the economic trinity versus the imminent trinity. It's all just projected there. I'm not saying the passage is inconsistent with a triune God theory, but I'm saying that it doesn't support any such theory at all. And it seems to better fit a Unitarian theology, because it sounds like Paul thinks that the one God is the Father. If you want to find out what Paul's theology is, or if you doubt this is by Paul, you know, what's the theology of the author of this book? Look in chapter 1, New Revised Standard. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, two mentioned there. There's Jesus. Oh, and then there's also God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So he sends greetings from two. One of those is God. That's the one he calls our Father. And the other one he's sending greetings from is our Lord Jesus Christ. He continues, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, etc. So this one he just called Father isn't just the divine person. It's the God and Father of Jesus. Well, he's just going to be the God, right? He's going to be our God as well. Even when you call Jesus Lord, that's not calling him Yahweh. It's calling him the number two person, you could say. Paul teaches one God and one Lord, 1 Corinthians 8. And that one who's God, the Father, is the God of that one we're calling Lord. He says it twice in Ephesians 1. Again, if this is by Paul. Verse 17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So Paul's theology is Unitarian. He thinks the one true God is the Father. I've got a whole podcast episode on this, a classic little tract by a 19th century Unitarian Christian author. That's podcast 253, The Apostle Paul, a Unitarian. So in chapter 3, he's not offering a Trinitarian prayer, he's offering a Unitarian prayer. And if you want to see the author of this book mentioning the one God in distinction again from the one Lord, read chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. What Paul's doing there is he's mentioning the things that unify Christians, the things that all Christians have in common. One body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, one God. Oh, and by the way, that one God's the Father. If you were going to mention that, hey, the thing that we have in common is the triune God, it's the Trinity, the God in three persons, this would be a good place to mention it. But he doesn't. Paul doesn't mention this anywhere. Does he call Jesus God? Let's say for sake of argument that he does. Yeah, but still overall his theology would be clear, right? Just looking at the big picture of all of Paul's writings, whatever you think that set of writings is. I pray that you clearly understand the doctrine of the Trinity from these key texts. And again, if I would have had time to go through and deal with these texts and ask him questions about these texts and cross-examine him in a normal debate, I would have done that. But for the sake of this podcast, I wanted you as my listening audience to know exactly where I stand, exactly how I would have argued. And if I ever had the chance again, hopefully this will be the presentation that I would be able to give, a fully-orbed doctrine of the Trinity that you see clearly emerge from the text of Scripture, not imposed by Augustine in the 4th century or from different theories, but directly from the text of Scripture. All right, well, that's his fuller case that he wanted to make. Again, Dr. Cole is expressing a widespread view that the Trinity can pretty easily be deduced from Scripture. As I mentioned, I think in my opening statement, that just can't be right, because you don't see this in the 100s, the 200s, and the first half of the 300s. If it could be easily deduced from the New Testament, it would have been then, and you would see people claiming that there are three persons in one God in those times, but you don't. You see subordinationists who think the one God is the Father, and then there are these two lesser divine persons, and then from the late 100s on, you see modalists, People who think the Logos is like a divine power or word or something, but not a full-fledged person or self. And then, of course, there are people who don't accept Logos theories and are called dynamic monarchians. They think Jesus is, quote, a mere man, in the words of their enemies. You have these right into, yes, the fourth century. For a famous example of a bishop of a large city who thinks that, who holds what we would call biblical Unitarian views, check out podcast 176 called Photonus of Sermium. 
This was in the middle of the long dispute following the Arius incident. And these things are all unsettled. The status of the spirit is unsettled. Quite in what sense the sun is supposed to be divine is unsettled. You still have people who don't think the sun is divine. They think he's a man, like we Unitarians think today. The small c Catholic stance here that the Bible obviously implies that God is triune is just not sustainable in light of what we know through history. But it's also not sustainable just in terms of these types of arguments like Dr. Cole is offering. They're just not convincing arguments. But as in any debate, you must be the judge. Which side put forward the stronger case and why? Let us know in the comments on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org or in the Trinities Podcast Facebook group. Well, this is the last of four parts. If you've been dedicated to listen through all four parts and you think that on the whole, I've put forward the stronger side, you should know about the Unitarian Christian Alliance. This is a coalition of Christians who believe that the one God just is the Father himself and that Jesus is his unique human son. Check out the website at unitarianchristianalliance.org. There you can get a free membership and a page on which you can use your real name or just a screen name. And this can put you in touch with other Christians and even churches and house churches in your area who hold to Unitarian Christian theology. You can also just Google Unitarian Christian Alliance. Check out the affirmation there. If you agree, we would love for you to stand with us. This week's thinking music has been The Laundry Cycle by Jesse Spillane. As always, there is a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.